Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Executors uh, podcast, Target Cancer. This is how health technology and technology in general is revolutionizing care uh, for cancer patients. Uh, I'm joined today by Dr. Human. Am I saying your name correctly? Yeah, yeah, Human. Human. Okay, Dr. Human, very nice to meet you. Thank you for coming on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your practice and, and what you do? Yeah, so, um, as you mentioned, my name is Justin Human. I'm a urologist and a, and a men's health specialist here in Los Angeles. So I specialize in both um, urology, everything that within the context of urology, whether it's general urology aspects in terms of helping men and women with their urinary issues, whether it's uh, cancer, cancer diagnoses, <laughs> cancer treatments. And then um, a big portion of my practice is men's sexual health and reproductive health, helping guys who have difficulties with erections or difficulties trying to conceive children. Got it. Wow, that's a really important um, field. So tell us a little bit, um, as you practice, like wh what what is it that patients are going through when they come to you? Like what what is what are they experiencing that really says they need to come and see you? Like what are the things that someone should be looking out for? Yeah, so I mean, I guess historically, the, the main thing that there's two things that really bring uh, men to the urologist. Number one is they have issues with their urination. The main one is they just wake up at night, they notice a weak stream. As men, we're all, I mean, we all have a prostate, it grows in size as we age, and that could create problems in terms of emptying your bladder, waking up at night, weak urinary stream. Um, those are the main symptoms. So that's a big one. That's you know probably the biggest reason why someone comes to the urologist. And the second one is, erectile dysfunction, right? It's something that, you know, 50% of guys experience it before the age of 40. And obviously that number continues to go up as we age. So uh, more than likely, we're all going to experience it at some point. And the good thing is there's treatment options for it. So those are the, those are the two main reasons why people come to me. So when someone is experiencing some of these, um, uh, these symptoms and they're thinking about coming in to see you, what should they be thinking about in terms of kind of educating themselves even before that first, or should they be educating themselves before that first visit? Like what, what are good sources for someone who's maybe worried and trying to make that decision and then wants to be ready kind of themselves for uh, discussion? Yeah. Um, you know, look, everyone's going to be looking up. I, I, I think you'd be, you'd be, it's difficult to find somebody who hasn't looked up the, uh, what they think the diagnosis is before they come in. Everyone really has some sense of what's going on just because the internet's so readily accessible, everything is so available to us um, from a patient and physician standpoint. So um, in terms of what the best resources are, there's not one out there that would say, hey, listen, this is the one for you. But really the idea is that if you are, if, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, what I, what, my mentality on this is I wouldn't necessarily use the internet in order to diagnose and treat yourself. It's, it's okay to use it as a means to educate yourself, but at the same time, make sure you see a physician to get some kind of diagnosis. So it's okay to learn about it and learn about your symptoms and maybe it's this, maybe it's that, but make sure you see somebody, at least a healthcare professional to, to properly assess you, properly diagnose you. And then um, if you need treatment, properly treat you as well. And so uh, as patients educate themselves and they're coming to see, um, to see you afterwards, right? Do, do you guys provide the information they need? Is it more that they need, they can continue to educate themselves? Like how, how should patients get support for kind of ongoing care? Um, because we all know the physicians are super busy, right? So it's a question of like how much time and how do you kind of the time um, uh, between what you're doing and then what patients could be doing on their own? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. And it's this, it's this balance of, um, 
you know, making sure that you educate the patient as much as you can during the time that you have with them in the office, number one. Um, and then that's the key thing. You want to really educate them as much as you can, because at the end of the day, you give them a diagnosis, they're going to go home and read about it. Inevitably, it's going to be more questions. And those questions, you know, they're going to call back with more additional questions and, you know, concerns, what have you. I personally, what I've tried to do is, um, based on the most common diagnoses that I see, most common things that I treat, I, I have pamphlets, I have online material where I've, I've written it myself, where I provide to the patient. And in doing so, it, it's my voice, it's my opinion. It really goes over everything in terms of the way I perceive it and the way I want to treat it and manage it. And that way it answers a lot of questions. And in doing so, I mean, a lot of the anxiety, a lot of the fear um, that patients experience with these diagnoses, they're, 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 it's calm, you know, they're much more calm and those, those fears are addressed. And so uh, how often do patients come in, for instance, um, when you're seeing them and, and they have an issue with, let's say, an enlarged prostate, but it ends up being prostate cancer? Is that something patients are really worried about? And like, how, how, does, how does one think about just kind of like what's, what's happening? How serious is this really? Like, are there certain things that people should be knowledgeable about there? I mean, you know, really, if every guy should, should make sure they're getting their, their, their PSA checked, their prostate checked, um, for two reasons. Obviously, the benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is just the benign growth, which causes those symptoms we talked about earlier, weak urinary stream, waking up at nighttime to urinate. Um, but more importantly, checking, checking blood work annually, either with your primary care doctor, with, a, with the urologist, especially if you have a family history of this. You know, if you have a family history of... Um, prostate cancer, it's very important to get your, your, your blood, you know, your PSA checked as early as 40, um, sometimes even earlier, but 40, um, just to make sure that, you know, your, your PSA is within a normal range, things aren't getting out of control. And, you know, prostate cancer, although it's very common, it's, it's, it's really easy to treat if diagnosed early. And the key is just diagnosed or being, being sure to diagnose early. And we have that we have the the technology, we have the ability to diagnose it early. So it's all about making sure the patient goes to their doctor and is, is seen in order to be diagnosed. I think, I think you might have said this a little earlier. Is family history really important there? Is that something that has a big impact? Yeah, if you have a first line, so if, whether it's your um, you have a brother, a father, um, an uncle, um, any, any male in your family who's had prostate cancer, uh, it puts you at a slightly increased risk of having uh, prostate cancer yourself. So that's an important part of it, definitely. And then what, what about, do you, do you also see bladder cancer patients? Are those also coming yeah. in? It's not as common, but we see those as well, yeah. Okay. And so in bladder cancer, if, if I remember right, there's kind of, um, there's non-muscle invasive, right, which is when it's in your bladder, and then there's muscle invasive. What, can you just explain to the audience kind of the different types of bladder cancer and, and then maybe some of the things they should, what they would be experiencing or seeing if that was a potential issue? Yeah, yeah. So um, the bladder cancer, it's the way to think about it. So the bladder is a balloon, um, and we, the way we diagnose bladder cancer is, as you said, non-muscle invasive and muscle invasive. And non-muscle invasive, if you think about it, the, has, the balloon has two layers. If the inside of the balloon has the tumor, um, that's called non-muscle invasive. However, if that tumor has gone from the inside into the outer layer of that balloon, that's when it's called muscle invasive. The reason why we're concerned about muscle invasive is, as you, as you can imagine, blood the mu muscles get a lot of blood flow. And if, if the cancer goes into those that, that muscles, more than likely it's, it's, it has metastasized. And the treatment for that is very, very different. Um, diagnosing bladder cancer, as I mentioned, it's, it's not that common. Bladder cancer is not super common, but there are risk factors for it. One being um, 
cigarette smokers, right? Inevitably, um, you know, cigarette smokers, as you can imagine, when you're smoking cigarettes, your, your kidneys are, are filtering those toxins. Those toxins sit somewhere, right? Until you urinate it out, it sits in that bladder, it sits in that reservoir that we have in our body. And it could permeate into the, the inner layer of that, that balloon, that, that muscle, and cause tumors. Um, so cigarette smoking, number one, and then work, if you have a history of working with chemicals, um, you know, if you work in an in industrial factory in the past, if you work with you know, people who work with a lot of hairspray, these are the typical things that we that, that could potentially cause this. Again, just chemicals being filtered by your kidneys, irritating the bladder. Um, the main, I mean, the, the first symptom of bladder cancer is we, typically what we say, it's called painless hematuria or painless blood in the urine. Many people will get blood in the urine one time, two times, they'll keep urinating and be like, all right, it's nothing. It happens again in a few months, like or it comes and goes, like it's nothing. If that happens, if that happens, at the very least, it's worth getting checked out. It could be, it could be a urinary tract infection. It could be a, um, your prostate, or it could be, God forbid, bladder cancer. So at the very least, just get it checked out. It's so easy to, you know, to be, to be um, the process of diagnosing this is so easy. But so would I see actual blood in my urine or would my urine be cloudy? Like what, what would I be looking for? Blood. Yeah, you'd see blood in your urine. Yeah, it may be pink, you know, a little bit of blood, a drop of blood in your urine. Blood is very, very concentrated. So even a drop of blood in your urine can make it pink, make it like a rosé. So if you see that, um, even that, even that, you know, it's worth, you know, it's worth um, at least discussing with your primary care doctor and then potentially with your urologist. Got it. Okay. So just go see your doctor if you have blood in your urine, get it checked out, be proactive. So um, in terms of the technology, just like the stuff you use in your practice, like what's, what's coming in that's kind of changing what you actually do? Like, what do you see directly in, are there new tools? Are there new drugs that you guys are using in, in directly in your practice? What's, what's kind of been changing in terms of the field? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the treatment, so prostate cancer, the treatments for it have changed significantly over the last five, 10 years, and we're learning more and more about it. Um, previously, um, you know, surgery and radiation for, for localized cancer have been good. Um, surgically, um, you know, we've, we've had the robot now. The robot's been around for about 10, 15 years, and that's revolutionized the way we, we operate, the radical prostatectomy. Before, the main risk factor, you know, big risk factors were urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction after um, the radical prostatectomy. Now, the robot has completely changed that. We're able to see the nerves. We're able to see the, the, the sphincter. So by removing the prostate, it's... Um, it's we're doing it under higher magnification, therefore less complications afterwards. Radiation is becoming more effective in terms of less collateral damage to the surrounding tissue. Um, I mean, you see some of these patients who had radiation therapy 20 years ago, and it's you know there's a lot of they don't they're cancer free now, but the collateral damage to the area is pretty significant, um, and that's getting better. The technology there is obviously getting better. Um, and then when you think of some of the you know metastatic disease, if guys have you know the cancer is spread outside the prostate, spread to their lymph nodes, their bones, those treatment options are getting better. Previously, we would just use what we call um, androgen deprivation therapy, where essentially we, we we kill your testosterone levels, we lower your testosterone levels to, to almost zero, um, and that you know sometimes worked, sometimes didn't. Now we know that there's other parts of your body that are producing your adrenal glands are part of uh, producing some testosterone, so we're addressing testosterone from there. All of these, essentially, these newer technologies um, have built, have been made to do two things. Number one, increase overall survival, and then number two, decrease the morbidity or, or the, uh, the the issues in terms of where we're improving the quality of life after, during and after treatment. So um, technology has really pushed those things forward. So I heard, um, I heard that 
uh, actually prostate cancer that actually a lot of men get it. Like it's a very common thing, but it's for most people or for many people, it's actually not an issue, right? Or it's something that they don't do something about. So how do you think about like in prostate cancer, what, whether you're going to be proactive, right? Uh, and what what's the, what are the kind of the decisions that have to be made right around this? And I know, and I think just as a layperson, I think like, oh, cancer is terrible, and then people say, well, it's not. Some of them maybe not. Like, how do you balance that sort of decision making? Yeah, so you have to. I mean, obviously, you have to assess from a physician standpoint, right? You have to assess the patient, right? Um, if the guy is 55 years old and he's been diagnosed with prostate cancer, you want to be pretty aggressive in terms of treating it because he's young. He's on the younger. I mean, he's a young guy, and if you don't treat this, he will die of the prostate cancer, right? Well, I mean, I'm making, I'm painting this with with a broad brush stroke here, because, but it depends on you know low, intermediate, or high risk. But if he's intermediate or high risk, you want to treat treat that, right? You want to address that. If the guy's seventy, you know, eighty years old, eighty five years old, and he's been recently diagnosed with prostate cancer. It's a different story because at that point, you know, you think to yourself, the morbidity or the the, the issues associated with whatever treatment it is, whether it's surgery. Um, or radiation treatment, um, that may that may actually cause more problems for him. You know, he may not even he may die. More than likely, he's going to die of something other than prostate cancer because prostate cancer is generally pretty slow growing. Generally, generally, um, so more than likely, he's going to die of something other than prostate cancer. So you don't necessarily have to be as aggressive. So, I guess the best way of saying it is you want to assess the patient, see where their functional status is now, see what their overall life expectancy, get a sense of what you think their life expectancy. Is. Um, you know, and you, you look at their comorbidities, other health issues, and then you make a determination in terms of how aggressive it would be. At the end of the day, though, it's shared decision-making between the patient and the physician. You obviously have to um, walk down that path together. You just brought up uh, one of my favorite topics, which is shared decision-making. So yeah. let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I, I, and this is one of the things that I think has really changed a lot over probably the last 10, 15 years, right? Is I think we all used to think about going to see our doctor as we're going to go see the doctor and they're just going to tell me what to do, right? And that, that certainly I know when talking to my parents, that was their expectation for most of the medical interactions that they have. And I think that's really changed. How do you feel about shared decision-making and kind of what does that process feel like and look like from, from your perspective um, with the patients that you work with? Um, so... I, I, I like it, to be honest with you. I, I think it's much more of a, um, I like it in the sense that, you know, patients are much more educated. So this comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Patients know more about their diagnosis. They know more about the treatment options available. So a lot of times they're coming in with an accurate diagnosis and with whatever treatment options they, they've read about and what they think is works for them. So, um, you know, they're more educated on those options. So sometimes it's less of a uh, discussion, less of a um, educational um dialogue on my part. I'm not necessarily uh, educating, but more so having a discussion in terms of uh, what do you think is best for you, depending on where you are in your quality of life. And ultimately, patients feel much more empowered, right? They're, they're, they're happier with their outcomes. They're happier. They take a little bit more responsibility in, um, in being proactive after surgery because they're, you know, they're kind of being, they're, they're, they were part of the decision making in order to get them there. So they're more motivated after surgery. More, um, They want to exercise. They want to eat right after surgery. They want to do all those things that they know will ultimately lead to, lead to a better outcome because they were part of that decision making. So it's in many ways, it's good. Obviously, it's not perfect, but in many ways, it's actually very good because uh, patients feel more empowered and that's very important. 
So as patients kind of educate themselves, they get ready for this process. So I always think about this with any sort of cancer, right? Or actually any medical disease, right? Like most people aren't trained in this. We don't think about, right, as a lay person about what's going on until it happens to us, right? So you suddenly have to learn all this information. How, how, how do you advise people to think about like the quality? Because I worry like if I go on, you know, anytime I don't know something, I just go on Google, right? Like I'm like, I'll go look it up. And then I discover that that's not all true, right? Some of it is good. Some of it's bad. Like how, how can I be a discerning consumer of information um, uh, in particular in prostate and bladder cancer, right? Like how, what are the choices that I, or, or the telltale things of like, this is good information versus not good information? Um, you know, you want things that, that I would say, you want things that are linked to some kind of science, some kind of published uh, piece of literature, um, scientific literature, that is. So uh, many websites out there have that, you know, they, they, they have links to wherever they're getting that data from. They say one particular treatment has um, this type of, this overall survival. There's a link to wherever they got that information versus another. Um, so, you know, having a, having good science backing it, having objective numbers backing it. Um, those are, those are important. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's like news, right? It's like news. There's no, you know, the way we all get our, our news these days, there's nothing, there's no one place to go. You know, you're going to get, there's a ton of information out there, which is good and bad, but, you know, reading numerous things, reading various articles, getting a better sense. Cause at the end of the day, once you read enough about it through different sources, you'll get a good sense. At the end of the day, there's going to be good generalizations in terms of of what works, what doesn't work, what's good for you, what's not good for you. So the more you read, to a certain extent, it's better for you. So look for the evidence. Look for like well-studied yeah. like things that, and I would think you're saying is like avoid things that don't refer to like clinical evidence or studies of some sort, right? If it's just like somebody's opinion, then realize it's an opinion. Um, Precisely. I mean, if you have published data, and not all published data is good, not but um Published data is at least better than hearsay or somebody's, like you said, somebody's opinion on YouTube. So let's talk a little bit. Um, we talked about uh, prostate cancer and kind of the the different ways in bladder cancer. These different types of bladder cancer. What what is the prognosis like when someone finds out they have bladder cancer? What is that really going to mean for them um, as a patient? And again, kind of where where are the decisions that they're making? So are there things that they can do that? reduce the risk after, you know, or going through the treatment or, or are there certain methods or, or, or treatments that really are, are the right way to go versus others? Um, how should people think about that in bladder cancer? Yeah. So back to what we were talking about the two, there's, there's non-muscle invasive and there's muscle invasive. So with non-muscle invasive, we could do a lot of treatments, what we call with intravesical therapies. So you know, the vesicle means bladder. So we, we treat you with um, whether it's putting a camera into the, you know, through the pee hole, through the urethra and burning the tumors, biopsying the tumors, removing the tumors, and then, um, instilling various types of, um, chemotherapy agents, intravesical agents, um, immunotherapy agents that could, uh, destroy that tumor. That's all within the bladder, right? Um, However, if it goes muscle invasive, then the treatment obviously changes. Um, for muscle invasive, what we have to do is something called a radical cystectomy, where we go in there and we actually have to remove the bladder. Um, it's a little bit more, it's probably the most uh, aggressive surgery that we do, um, at least regularly as urologists. Um, you know, we have to remove the bladder. And as you can imagine, the bladder plays an important function in terms of storing our urine. So you have two options after that in terms of we, we have to do a reconstructive procedure in addition to 
the removal of the bladder. And the, the reconstructive options, there's two main ones. These are the more common ones. One of them is called an ileoconduit, where we take a piece of your small intestine, actually, and uh, we, we attach one portion of that small intestine to your anterior abdominal wall, to, you know, just the front of your belly. And then the other portion sits inside your abdomen. And we connect the ureters, we connect the kidneys to that back end of the conduit. And essentially all the urine goes into that, uh, that piece of small intestine and then drains into a bag outside your, 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 your abdomen. Um, so I'll, that's called an ileoconduit. Um, that, you know, with that, you're going to have a bag on your, your belly for um, the rest of your life. And you're going to be urinating into a bag. There's no continent. So you're constantly, every, all the urine that you're producing is constantly spilling into a bag. You're never going to go to the bathroom to go, you know, to go urinate ever again. The other option is, so that bothers a lot of people. So for people who want to urinate, like an ileoconduit, excuse me, it's called a neobladder. So we, same thing, we take a piece of small intestine, a much larger piece of small intestine, and we create a, a sphere and we connect the kidneys to that sphere and we attach it to your urethra, your native urethra, and then same idea, you, you're able to urinate um, as you were before. You don't necessarily feel that you have to urinate because obviously your small intestines doesn't have those nerves that your, your bladder did. So um, your lifestyle changes significantly. Um, you're catheterizing yourself. You sometimes, you know, you go into the bath, you go into the, the bathroom regularly every couple. You know, you remind yourself every four or five, six hours you go to the bathroom to empty your neobladder. Um, catheterization is less common in that situation, but um, your lifestyle does change significantly if you have to have a radical cystectomy. There's no question about it. And are there um, are there like pros and cons to each one? Are they a personal choice, really, or is there um, like is one more appropriate? than the other someone's thinking about it um so, you know there's there's things that there's obviously there's certain things that if, if you have um if the cancer has gone into the urethra for example right hmm. if we, um then we, we don't do a neobladder right as you could imagine because we're leaving cancer behind um there's definitely small small um contraindications or minor contraindications to each one but well, a, the big, a big part of it is what you deem as important to you as a patient in terms of how it's going to impact your quality of life. Got it. So it's really, a, again, part back to the shared decision-making, something you kind of need to weigh out yeah. with your doctor about what it, what it's going to work for you or not. What, what about the drugs? Like, are there new drugs? I mean, I, I know that um, I think many of the like novel immuno-oncology agents are actually targeted at bladder cancer to start with. Yeah, yeah, they're doing that with with radiation as well. Um, there's this whole thing of you know bladder sparing techniques with long in order to, to prevent you know all this. As I talked about, the morbidity associated with bladder cancer. Um, so there's things we're trying to do in that sense. Um, more driven. That's a little bit more driven by by, by oncologists and radiation oncologists. At least um, it all depends on what region you're at. But, um, yeah, like anything else, it's not just going to it forward, trying to improve overall survival, like I said, and then decrease the mobility. Wonderful. So thank you. So it sounds like um, um, this, again, is another area where it's going to What about patient support and advocacy? Like for patients who are going through this, are there really good patient advocacy groups that you recommend that really have good information and like support systems for patients? So like what, where, what would I want to connect to just in terms of like my own social community if I'm going through this experience? Yeah. Um, lo locally, there's always, there's, there's a ton of groups, right? Um, here in, um, 
here in Los Angeles, um, the Tower Cancer uh, Tower Cancer Group. They're they're wonderful. Tower Cancer Research Research Foundation. They're wonderful. They have support groups within it. Um, every you know most areas, whether you're in a metropolitan city or not, they have these support groups. And it's really it's as simple as just going on the internet and finding out because um, this is common enough that there's people who are experiencing it. And as much as doctors are there and you know nurses and nurse practitioners are there to help a lending hand. You know, going or speaking to somebody who's actually gone through that journey, uh, it's, in, it's invaluable. So, it's, you know, it's one of those things that you should definitely try to um, at least speak to and see what people's, you know, people's issues were, what their advice is. And that could only help in terms of um, helping educate you more as a patient. Got it. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Herman, thank you so much. This is super helpful, by the way. That uh, I think our audience will just really appreciate being able to have this sort of insight and understand um, what some of these decisions are. Um, so, thank you. Of course, of course. Thank you for thank you for taking the time. I enjoyed. Yeah, this is this is great. I enjoy doing it. Okay, so um, they're going to cut. We're going to cut a, a few pieces of this um, up. I think we're going to have um, some patients actually join us. So. Welcome to the Exteriors podcast, uh, Target Cancer. It's really about how technology and knowledge is changing the world for cancer patients uh, and their physicians. And we're joined today by uh, Molly Marco. Molly, uh, tell us a little about you and your story. Sure. In um, July 2016, I had a very busy day. I went to the gym. Actually, I ran to the gym. I walked home from the gym. Wow. I uh, went to work, I went on my lunch break, and my big thing is coffee. I'm kind of obsessed with it, and I, it was fancy coffee, too, not like a Folgers, Starbucks person, like fancy coffee. And I walked to a coffee shop in downtown Detroit on my lunch break and was talking to the barista, and then all of a sudden I felt nauseous, and I put my head down, which is really, really weird. I don't, I don't do that very often. I don't feel that way very often. And next thing I know, I'm on the floor, and there's... EMS uh, asking me questions and I was at the moment very mortified terrified because I mean I just was so embarrassed too I was like oh my gosh someone had too much caffeine today and um, I just thought I fainted but they and I was like well I wanted to go back to work I was so embarrassed I was like I need to call my boss I need to call the office and tell them I, I'm running late because I, I fainted and they're like no you're going to emergency and you you're going to go take this ambulance and go there because we think you had a stroke or a seizure and we need to find out and I just at the moment I laughed because I honestly thought they were d ridiculous um I and then when I got up I felt kind of nasty because I had a concussion and I that did not feel good but um yeah, that day, after a bunch of testing, they I did not have a stroke, but I did have a seizure. They found a brain tumor the size of an avocado pit in my left temporal lobe. Wow. And that was very shocking. I was just going to say that must have been incredibly shocking to you. Yeah, especially if you feel well. Like, sometimes people have symptoms that they begin to suspect are mm -hmm. something, or, or what I thought was a seizure until then was not what I actually had. Like seizures come in a whole array, array. I don't even think that's the word, but they come in a array of ways and they don't look the way they do in movies necessarily. Maybe a grand mall, but like for the most part, I and, I, and then in retrospect, we realized that I had been having those for like, in like specs, maybe for over a decade before that. Like I had been having, I probably had a low grade glioma for some time before it, 
kind of powered up and came to life. But I'd been so, having seizures before. Yeah. In retrospect, what what were those like? When you now you you learned something, right? So you realized that something had been happening before. What what was that that was kind of happening before? I really had oh, usually when I was having some stress or anxiety, I would faint, and it only happened a few times, but it did happen, and I would feel kind of nauseous and just faint. But then I would come back to it and feel like everything was normal. Nobody ever suspected it was anything else, but it, it hadn't happened a lot, but it would happen. And I just think they were like little call outs. Um, you know, there's something up. I had other things like word and memory issues getting worse with time. But I just, you know, sometimes like anyone could have those. You don't necessarily know when that becomes more important or less important. Like, is this normal? Did I just not sleep good? It, I, and as as telling my brain got worse as the tumor was growing, I know that that's when stuff was getting better. I remember having a panic attack in a post office for my passport because I couldn't remember, like, where I was born. I know where I'm, oh, I'm born, but I know where I was born. Um, but I just couldn't, I couldn't find the words in my head. And I remember panic calling my mom and uh, asking her, she's like, how do you not know where you're born? You were born in Detroit. You were born, um, you know, X, Y, and Z. But I couldn't remember the words and I couldn't say them. And it's usually when I'm panicked is when I can't remember very simple things, names. And in my case, the, after the surgery, it was my short-term memory is bad and my name recovery is very bad. So, but I'm pretty healthy otherwise. It's just, it's brains are weird. So that. So uh, did you know anything about brain tumors or brain cancer kind of before any of this happened? What level of experience did you have? Well, you know, people in my parents' generation didn't really talk about it. So apparently I have a whole family line of brain tumors um, and brain cancers, but they didn't talk about it. So I didn't really know. I knew about vaguely of glioblastoma because of all the celebrity and uh, politicians with that, but I didn't I didn't have much knowledge, and I, I thought of all the cancers possible, I didn't have, I would never have that one, because don't you have to have headaches to have a brain tumor? Like, it never occurred to me, I could, I, I, that was last on the list of things I suspected, and yet in my head, I thought the worst possible one I could think of was brain. And what do I end up with? Eh, brain. I never would have thought in a million years. So how, how did, where did you go to like learn? Did you, was it the doctors in the hospital system? Were there other resources? Like how did you start putting, and you and your, your loved ones, your family, like how did you guys work through this situation? So I, I'm big on social media. That is my jam. I'm good at it. I like it. I'm 41 now, but I'm like right at that in-between generations where I'm still like into it, but I'm not, I'm not, I, I love it. I enjoy it. I get pretty positive things from it. So I just ask, I'm big on Twitter, I'm big on Instagram, I'm big on Facebook. I, it was actually Twitter that helped me the most. Um, I love my hospital. I don't know if, you want, if I'm allowed to say the name of my health system, but they were amazing and they introduced me to First. some um, events. So I go to Henry Ford Health System in Detroit. Mm -hmm. I have an amazing team and that first diagnosis is, is extremely overwhelming. And I thought I had a benign brain tumor the whole time. And so when it came, came out as astrocytoma grade three, I didn't know what that meant. Um, I know that any, in my mind, anything after a two, one and two are the good ones, two, three, four, 
other ones. I, it do, now, over time, I understand things a lot better, especially the brain. But at the time, I was like, I'm dying, you know. Like, I need, I need chemo. Just the idea of chemo. Like, I'm dying. Um, radiation, I'm really dying. All the things. Just, mm-hmm. I was freaked out. I actually, when my, I met my neuro-oncologist briefly before I got my diagnosis. I was interested. But, like, I think they all had an idea of what they, but, you know, they're not going to tell you what they think. Because they don't want to be wrong, but they also don't want to freak you out either. You still got a surgery coming up. I met my neuro-oncologist. I don't even have a memory of that until he called me with my diagnosis. And he's the nicest person on the face. And however he told me, my diagnosis was, like, the most calm, gentle, like, if there's a way to be positive with a cancer diagnosis, he was amazing. And he told me I could come into the office and talk to him, and he would answer any questions. He could come in any time that day, and he would, he and the nurse navigator were going to, like, talk me through this and help me, and I could bring bring my family with me and my boyfriend. And that happened, that he just, you know, described the diagnosis, the treatment, you know, what we were going to do from here, and that's very overwhelming. So a lot of things, as a patient, go in one ear and out the other because you're just like, so, especially if you're shocked. Some people aren't shocked because they kind of already know the symptoms or what, what they're, like, usually with other cancers, I believe surgery is something that comes after, right? Like, you'd usually do, like, your chemo first and then maybe surgery and then maybe radiation. But for brains, it's, if you can do the surgery, you do the surgery first. Unless you don't need the surgery and you do the radiation or something. But what, I don't know what I'm saying right now anymore. But, like, it was different. I had the surgery... I healed really quickly, and then it was radiation stat. Radiation, full full steam ahead, and chemo, which is, in my case, temidar or temozolamide. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very overwhelming in any case when you're approached. And then I got involved with a Twitter account called uh, BTSM Chat. Hashtag BTSM, which is Brain Tumor Social Media, and they were inspired to start with when they saw brain cancer social media or breast cancer social media. So it started with BCSM, and BTSM is what I'm involved with, and that's how I heard about things like Head to the Hill, Head for the Cure. Like, well, actually, Head for the Cure is big with my hospital, so I heard about Head for the Cure through them. Um, I want to learn as much as like a possibly learn. So I was getting involved with ABT, American Brain Tumor um, mm-hmm. Association, then because of Head to the Hill, um, the National Brain Tumor Society, um, Immerman Angels, where you can link patients. With similar, I'm active with all of those things because I want to learn as much as possible and help as much as possible. And that helps when you are diagnosed with something that's kind of scary and terrifying. It's real easy to, like, cluster yourself up. Too, especially older people, I find. Um, for me, I'm a social person, and I need to talk, and I want to help people. And helping people makes me feel less alone, but it helps other people feel less alone. And, uh, yeah, so that's what I do. And I'm also, because of brain stuff, I'm focused with things that talk about death and dying and that process as well, because I think that's really important. Um, so that's end well. Um <laughs> So as you considered the treatment options, like your your team was informing you we're going to be doing this or that, uh, this is what we want to do. Were you involved in that decision-making as well? Like, were you kind of part of that or? Um, um, I don't think I 
have their own, um, their tumor board. I mean, I could, I did their searches, like, so I went to another hospital, and their treatment would have only been slightly different. Um, there's only, like, two real, I mean, two or three real treatments for my particular tumor. So I went the most aggressive route. Um, I, we, we treated mine as if it was glioblastoma. Um, I think there's, like, a PC without the T or PCV without the V. I don't know. That's another thing. I do something, did something called temozolomide. So, yes, they're, they're, they, they had their tumor board. They told me what they would do, and I shopped around. But ultimately, most people are just going to end up doing what I did anyway. So I just went the route, and it's pretty common. And did, did you kind of validate that on social media? Was that kind of the interaction with the other patients? Yeah, and... I just, it seems like oh, basically like the only thing people are really, unless you do the ketogenic diet. I did know, I do know one gentleman who did, he kind of cut his radiation short. Um, he had the same diagnosis as I do, actually the worst mutation. He has the, he has the IDH1 wild type. I have the mutant. So he did have, I guess I put, I like little quotation marks worse they're all bad but um he had this astro three but he had the wild type which would now put him in the class of glioblastoma but he's many years like no evidence of disease and he does a strict but when he does the ketogenic diet he doesn't just do it like i eat i don't eat carbs he like does it full-on strict he takes right. the blood work he does the finger pricks he you know He's real strict with it, and I feel like that's the only way to do that really well because doing it kind of nakedly is just hard, and so I don't do that. But, yes, there are other ways, be a, but, like... Yeah, wouldn't be the ketogenic diet if you wasn't really ketogenic, right? Um, yeah, full-on, and, like, it's not just pee strips, you know? It's, like, full-on, like, getting shots, taking blood, getting blood work, seeing his, like, ups and downs and whatever, and that's... Most people don't do that, but... You know, some people still can do it well. Men seem to do well. Men, so much. I don't know if it's like a thing or just I'm hungry all the time. So it's not my thing. So just in terms of the information community, any any advice for people like going in to see their physicians, like of information or knowledge they should have or technology they should be aware of, like it, anything that, that really stood out, maybe something you wish you did differently or that you did that was like, you're like, oh, I'm really glad I did that. Um, yeah, I would, I actually do think, I don't like Facebook groups for cancers just because they tend to be really, like, depressing, and a lot of people just find them very difficult. Um, I, but I do think social media is huge, and I don't know if that's what you mean, but, like, social media, like, legit um, accounts, and, like, look, find, you can always find, like, someone on Twitter, like, a doctor or an organization, and those places are really, really helpful. They're also on Instagram, also on Facebook, but I, I do find Twitter to be extremely helpful, um, at least on navigating, and that's how I found most of the things, like, in my case, the American Brain Tumor Association, National Brain Tumor Society, Head for the Cure, Head to the Hill, Immigrant Angels, those are all great, and they're great for helpers, and they help connect you with people in similar situations. And I feel like that's really helpful. And they also that's how you find out sometimes like, oh, like, you know, the Optune device for a glioblastoma patient. Like you might not have any interaction with, especially if you're in like a rural community, like maybe in Northern Michigan or you're like down South somewhere, but you're not by a major cancer center. You won't know about these things. And 
you know, you're like, you're like oncology people maybe will, but like maybe they won't, or maybe you can just ask. But I, that's why I use all those accounts, like all the social media accounts. Find them, and they can help. Even pancreatic, like my mom and my aunt had pancreatic cancer and passed away, so I'm getting I'm involved sorry. with pancreatic, pancreatic cancer stuff, like just to know, like, am I at risk? Because that's weird. That have you know, and I also want to know about like that's another thing because not every general practitioner will know what to lead you to. So if you have, find a social media account, they tell you know, about there's some kind of like study or research or you know like send me a link so I can send my general practitioner a link and I can or ask questions. Can you talk a little about the emotional journey and maybe some support where? How did that go? I can imagine this is just a really difficult thing emotionally as well. What What was that? I just missed the, the top part okay. of the question. Did you talk? What was your emotional journey? What was the emotional journey like? And what support did you get there? How How did you go through that? I find it first. I'm really loud and about with my feelings and stuff on all the media, so I don't struggle with that. But that it's very shocking at first, and you don't even know where to start. Um, I was just, the minute I was diagnosed, I put it on social media. I'm like, hey, like, we, everyone knew I had a brain tumor. Everyone had a WADA test. They knew, like, the WADA test, by the way, I could talk to you about, for like, more about how cool the WADA test is. They turn off one side of your brain and the other side of the brain. But uh, also, like, neuroscience. Like, I was just talking. Anytime I had something done before surgery, I was talking about it. I wanted to, like, have my picture taken with my brain wrap, like, after surgery. Like, I was always, like, talking about it. And, you know, I was waiting for my results. So everyone on my so on my social media was waiting for my results, too. And when I, I, so I just broke it right away. I'm like, well, I have cancer. And I did not expect that. It is called, mm -hmm. ana, at the time, it was called anaplastic astrocytoma. They have now negated the anaplastic from it, from the WHO 2021 grading changes. But um, I, I, I thought I was dying, you know, like that. I just, and... I didn't really understand it, and then my at the time I had a general practitioner who I don't have now. She left, but she was shocked with my diagnosis, and she was kind of weepy with me too about it. So I really thought I was dying. So I had to call my neuro oncologist, and I go, "I need to talk to you. Like, am I dying? Like, I'm okay. Like, just tell me, am I dying? What's the real thing?" He's like, "Well, he kind of explained. Yeah, we do kind of give you like the the, the most easiest way to approach it." But, you know, if you want to know, I can tell you more. I'm like, I want to know the stats. I want to know. And, and then it turned out, like, I for a while considered myself a terminal brain tumor patient. I mean, on one level, if you want to look at that that way, you can. And some people cope with it that way. But now I no longer consider it terminal until it's terminal. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. we can't fix it right now. But over time, I, I coped with it I but I had, like, I kind of had to come to that feeling on my own. Like, for me, I kind of went, like, the darkest way possible to start. And I was like, well, I'm dying. Well, now I'm like, oh, now, you know, maybe. We all are anyway. So that's another way I took to approach it. Like, to me, I've always been into, like, death and dying anyway. Long before diagnosis, I was a weird little kid pulling out books on, like, near-death experiences and all that weird stuff, like, where the library lady would have to my mom make sure like it was okay and I'm not going to jump out the window or anything I just like that stuff so for me it was processing that way now I'm very upbeat and I'm very positive and very happy to be alive but like 
it took it took a while to get there. I, I tended to be pretty dismal, and I loved to like my first time talking to people. I'd be like, "Yeah, I'm gonna die," you know, like totally be like, "I'm terminal." Like I don't know why I thought it was like a cool thing, but it's a way to get people to listen to. Somehow, if you have a story where people think you're dying, you're like way more interested. And as a kid who always liked attention and wanted to be on stage, yeah, that's a great way to get like the cameras on you, right? Well, I'm really glad you're here, Molly, sharing the story with us. Just, just you know, really happy about that. Um, maybe uh, you brought it up, and actually, I don't know. Uh, it was first time for me, but maybe just this last thing. Tell us about this water test. Um, uh, as maybe oh the last thing, you said it was oh, it cool. I, I don't know what that is. So, it's not supposed to be cool. Apparently, like it's not something that they don't like to do terribly often. I think because it is a high risk, you can have a stroke and you can die doing a water test. Um, but they didn't tell me too much about it just because I'm left-handed and uh, my tumor was on my in my deep left temporal lobe. So I, it, it would probably have to do with the quality of the surgery and whether I needed to be awake or not. And uh, so I did this test. So I had no information really on it other than, like, you know, it'll take about an hour and a half or something. But what we what they do is they turn off one side of your brain ask you a bunch of questions. Well, they ask you a bunch of questions and they turn off that si a side of your brain and then they ask you questions and they let you like ease out of the thing where your brain starts, you know, that brain starts to like work again and then they ask you the same questions. Then they like let you recover for a half hour or so and then they turn off the other side of the brain. I remember when they turned off, I believe it was the left side first and, you know, they ask you questions and I don't remember my answers. I just remember thinking, like, she would hold up a picture of, like, a bear. What do you see? And I'd be like, a bear. And she'd be like, no. And I'm like, a bear. And she'd be like, no. I'm like, what am I saying that is not what I think I'm saying? Like, what is my brain, like, thinking? The best part was when she would ask me to say the days of the week. And I'd be like, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And she's like, no. And then, like, five minutes later, she was like, say it again. You know, like, after, she's like, I said it again the same exact way. She's like, no, we'll try again. And I'm like, what am I saying? And then eventually, in my head, I, like, I go, well, I'm going to mix it up. And I said, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In my head, that's how I changed. Then she goes, yes. And I'm like, well, well, I just still to this day wonder what I was saying for that was different than, like, because to me, those are both right. Um, and then when they turned off the right side of my brain, I just remember counting backwards and then waking up with, like, tears on my side but feeling really good. Like, I, so I had, like, tears on my face, but I felt like I had just been laughing for a while. And I, when I'm looking around, all the doctors are, like, un, like taking, like, the thing out of my femoral artery. They're, like, you know, there's blood everywhere, but they're laughing. The, the uh, neurologist is laughing. Everyone's laughing. I'm like, what just happened? And they said, you were just really funny. I go, what did I say? They're like, you were, you were just really funny, and they didn't tell me. And that's, I, I apparently I had a great time when they shut off that side of the brain. To me, that was awesome. I would do it again if it didn't have such a, a Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would uh, recommend that. Well, Molly, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And thank you for sharing your experience with anyone. Um, thank you so much. Well, keep me posted. And thank you so much for your patience with my time. Thank you. Thank you, Molly. Nice yeah. to meet you. Bye-bye. Hi, Amy. Can you hear me? How are you? 
Can you hear me? Yes, absolutely, loud and clear. So hi, my name is uh, Mika. Uh, I'm the CEO of a company called Xcures. This is a podcast called Target Cancer. It's all about technology and information and knowledge uh, and how that's affecting cancer patients. So thank you first for coming on the show, sharing your time and story with us. So maybe tell me a little bit about you and your story and experience. Sure. Um, well, um, my experience with cancer was I was um, a 34-year-old mom of two little kids, just living a really kind of average life of taking care of my kiddos and working and getting everyone to and from school and wasn't feeling so great and had started to have symptoms of to me struck me as you know a digestive issue um i knew it was something going on but i didn't know how serious it was though i have cancer history in my family my grandmother had cancer at age 50 and my mother had uterine cancer actually passed of that in um 2011 so i went into my doctor kind of forcefully and aggressively and said hey look I know I'm young. I know that this seems kind of wild, but I'm having these symptoms. I have this family history and I'm really concerned. And, you know, to the doctor's credit, they're playing the numbers and they're doing, you know, their kind of steps of process to eliminate other things that could be because they had just recently had a baby. You know, they were thinking it was adjustments in my body, anxiety. You know, I went to a year of counseling before I finally was in a GI doctor's office and kind of just demanded to him, I need a colonoscopy. I know this sounds wild. I know because he was like, you're not a smoker, you're fit, you're young. Even with your family history, it's really unlikely that you have cancer. Um, went into that colonoscopy, came out, um, you know, went in being told, We'll get over this and you'll be on your way tomorrow and woke up with stage three colon cancer no biopsy even just like clearly had cancer and so i went right into treatments and um it, it kind of just took off from there um i had a diagnosis of lynch syndrome which explained my family history mm -hmm. um how much you know about Lynch syndrome. I'm learning still about it because- Was that the first time you found out you had Lynch syndrome was- okay. I, um, I've talked about this before, you know, I didn't ever have that diagnosis of Lynch syndrome, but because of the family history, I always did consider in my mind that cancer is a very serious kind of um, reality in my family. So I hadn't heard the words Lynch syndrome yet, but I did have that kind of weight on my shoulders already. So hearing it kind of validated what I had been kind of expressing to doctors for a while, even though, again, to their credit, I was in my 30s and seemingly healthy, blood work coming back totally fine, but still having issues that started as like kind of normal digestive issues that anyone could have. And then, you know, quickly escalated into bleeding and cramping and me saying, like my body was telling me, there is something wrong, you need to get help. And so luckily I did, you know, advocate for myself and not sit around much longer than I did because by the time I found it, it had already progressed to um, lymph nodes. So I lucky where they caught it, um, it was still stage three, but, Still, you know, I spent about a year trying to get diagnosed. 
So you, you had thought a little bit about cancer because of the family history. Did, did you also have to go off and educate yourself then uh, around cancer? Like how did, did, how much did you know and kind of where did you learn about what you needed? Like what was good places to get knowledge and information? Great question. Um, when I first was diagnosed, the first person who said anything about genetic uh, can cancers to me, um, I had heard of bracket, bracket testing before, but nothing in the, the vein of um, the, the cancers that were in my family, um, being the Lynch cancers, as most commonly colon cancer, but also uterine cancer in women and other reproductive cancers are really common with Lynch. Um, and the first person that said that to me was my surgeon who was doing my uh, colorectal surgery. Before we even went into what my surgery was going to entail, he wanted to know, well, he said, I think you're Lynch just by looking at your family tree. I want to get you genetic tested. So within um, Dignity Health in Arizona, here, St. Joe's, downtown Phoenix, great great people. Um, they sent me to their genetic testing and to their genetic counselor. And I think that's an important part of it because I know there's a lot of these like mail away kits that you can do, but this was somebody who actually sat down with me after I got my test back and really explained to me what it meant that I had a Lynch positive um, uh, result. And um, if you do have genetic testing, I suggest either working with a genetic genetic counselor or really, again, doing your research, like you said about Lynch, because it is confusing. It's new information. We're still learning a lot about these cancers. Um, I was recently on a podcast for um, Dave Dubin's um, company, Alive and Kickin', where they go into a lot of these research, um, new researches into um, treatments for Lynch cancers because they are so specific in the way they need to be treated. Um, once I had my Lynch diagnosis, my uh, colorectal surgeon said, hey, normally I'd say, let's take a part of your colon, let's rebuild here, let's do this, let's do that. He was just like, we got to get rid of the whole colon, a, total, a complete hysterectomy, you know, we need to get rid of all of these um, kind of points for recurrence that are likely to come up if you don't get rid of them now. And so in that way, it was a big hit to me all at once, but I've been really lucky where I've met other people in the Lynch community and cancer community who've had multiple surgeries. I had one big nasty surgery after doing chemo and radiation for six weeks. I had a surgery and then I did intravenous chemo for, um, for four months after my surgery recovery but I really was able to just remove all of this possibility, at least for those that so I could. This must've been a, a, just a really emotional time for you as well, especially with, with children. Can you talk a little about the emotional support that you got? Like, how did you go through this emotionally? And then with something that's a genetic and hereditary, mm -hmm. how, how do you, I have children. So like, how do you manage that whole discussion and what, what do you do about it? When I get there, I'll you know, you know, it's a journey. It's just this thing of constantly learning more. Um, radical acceptance of this is what my life is. This is what my personal journey is. And now because I have two children that I had before I had this diagnosis, which is complicated, you know, um, I, I seek therapy. I have, 
that I really trust and that I go deep and honest with. I have friends, personal friends who have been my friends for hundreds of years. I have friends in the cancer community and the ostomy community because I no longer have a colon. I have an ostomy and ileostomy bag. So I've made friends in that community. Um, my, my family, my kids, my husband, of course, my, my, you know, nucleus of support, but I really did have to get kind of creative, especially in the, um, after the initial shock wore off, I needed to kind of figure out because once that shock wears off, it's kind of like, I think when you break a bone or you get a cut or whatever, once that you wear down, then you have to get real on like, okay, how am I going to get up and do this every single day? Mm -hmm. So I'm, it's continuing um, and I'm getting a little better at it, but I definitely have my moments. Um, I do a lot of social media. I talk to a lot of people who are like me or have a similar diagnosis to me or just have been through extreme life events and still want to have fun and still want to be a good mom and a good friend involved in life and not just the sick one or, you know, because I do have to navigate a lot of tests screenings and all of that, especially being a recent uh, cancer survivor. It's, I'm still new into my journey. So one last question, Amy, any particular place where you saw like technology, um, you talked a lot about social media. I consider that technology and like the internet and the communities, like other places or th other things that, that you think people should know about who might be in a similar situation. Yeah. So I know that there's a lot of networks that have to do with the genetic counseling and genetic testing. I think getting involved with those so you can get connected to other people. You know, some people are just not into Instagram or Facebook or, or, or that's complicated. There's lots of layers to that more direct where you can just like Google, you know, Lynch support groups or, you know, ostomy support groups or especially my, I'm right in that middle group. Although I do feel still feel like a very young adult to be to have faced cancer. It's, it's all different for kids who are like 16 to 20 versus people who are in my age group versus people who are in their 40s. So it's finding, I think, those nuanced little uh, kind of places where you can find people who understand you. It's also understanding that it's just going to take time. It's, it's such a shock to your system. I, I don't care who you are, the strongest person, if you told them cancer, it'd bring them to their knees. And it does. And like allowing yourself to go there and then know that there's the other side, even if you are continuing treatment or like me continuing that screening for the possibility of who knows what's um, other, you know, sources of uh, digital help are like, you can contact your uh, doctor so much easier. I can't imagine people who had surgery in the 70s, you know, or, you know, I could text my, my surgeon at any time and they were so amazing. Um, Dignity Health had an amazing network um, for me to access my information. I always felt like they were, and they still are, my team and I can call them, even text them in the middle of the night if I, if I needed to, That's you fantastic. know. So I think that helps and just, Talking, listening to podcasts, getting out there and knowing that isolation feeling, you're not alone, you are not alone. It feels lonely. It feels like a, a really, um, my oncologist called it a marathon. And I remember I just saw him 
after my most recent scan, which came back no evidence of cancer. So that's great. And he said, right. you know, this is when we talked in the very beginning and I was just a wreck. Um, he said, you're starting a marathon. He's like, you literally just, you know, you're, you finish your marathon and yes, there's a new journey ahead and we, and we start that, but first we can celebrate that. Like you ran a marathon and you know, you did it. So I think the doctors and the networks that they provide are, are coming leaps and bounds, especially knowing my mom went through cancer. I personally didn't experience that at that time, but I watched her juggle it and it's, it's a different world now. So, but thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It's so important for everyone to be able to share these types of experiences and the information and kind of what works and doesn't. So thank you for coming on Target Cancer, Amy. Really appreciate your time today. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you or someone you know has advanced cancer and needs to make a treatment decision soon, please click on the link in the description and sign up for the X-Cure's free options and information service.